Hey, Jordan, what's up? How's it going? Hey, Rob, congrats on Avatar crossing Thank the you. $2 billion threshold. $2 billion. You know, people didn't believe. People didn't believe that we could do this. This is our victory to all the Avatar heads in the, the Insurgents audience. I know you haven't felt represented in some of the the, the guests, quote-unquote quote guests that we've had on this program over the last couple of weeks, but it was Heard Your Cries and James Cameron, box office Jim, they call him. Proven, to, proven to yet again. Proven the haters wrong yet again. Yep, the haters, the doubters, the I losers. They have all got uh, egg on their face right now. Absolutely, that's right. <laughs> well, Couldn't yeah, be happier. We'll see how Oscar season goes. I'm, I'm excited for uh, Oscars. The Oscars as a big Oscars head. So yeah. we will see. We will see. Yeah, and we talked I'm, a little I'm, bit about this also with our guest coming up, uh, returning champion Jack Crosby. We we talked we talked, we, had, we had a substantial movie chat with Jack because he's hosting now a a War on Terror themed movie podcast Schlock and Awe, so he was able to come talk about that project, talk a little a little Oscars talk, a little Avatar uh, rapping there yeah. as usual. Jack also another big thriving. fan of the film, uh, and he encouraged no, everyone I don't to go check that, that out. That being the theme yeah, of his uh, comments, I believe but okay. that's how that. How that went, I kind of tuned out little, at some certain points. I'm pretty sure that's how here. it was. Yeah, uh, and also talked about this really uh, important and disturbing story that he's been covering for Rolling Stone about uh, this cop city project in Atlanta and the protest movement that has sprung up in response to that. Really good conversation with uh, Jack Crosby. Uh, it's been a good week of content here on this program. Uh, we've got that coming up. We had our previous episode earlier this week with Ricky and Elliot from Internet Today. That was tremendous as well. We've been, frankly, we've been killing it lately, if you don't mind me we saying so. Been. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was good. For paid subscribers, earlier this week, we recorded and released an episode with Ricky and Elliot of Internet Today. They joined us to talk about the absurd woke M&M's controversy and what that illustrates around corporate cowardice after you know, astroturfed outrage cycles, and ultimately these hollow corporate PR moves to appeal to some social movements for attention, for clout, increased sales, whatever. You know, corporate feminism in this instance uh, was quickly rolled back after the worst faith actors on the right pretended to be upset over the M&M's mascots. We got into a little bit of that. The fight between Ben Shapiro and Steven Crowder and what that says about the state of independent, quote, media online and how it's very easy for the right to prop up these institutions or these outlets because of billionaire or multimillionaire benefactors. It was a ton of fun. You can get that by subscribing at theinsurgents.substack.com. That episode and our entire back catalog of premium episodes. For just five bucks a month, you get access to another episode every week. We encourage you to subscribe. You help keep the show going and you help support uh, our work. So we really, really appreciate to uh, all of you. We really appreciate all of you who have subscribed over the past few years. 
We can't thank you enough. So the insurgents.substack.com, if you would like to become a paid intern, is what we call our subscribers. You get access to the paid intern feed. Yeah, the paid intern feed. We love it. Um, thank you so much to all our paid interns. Just to reiterate what Jordan said. And let's get to Jack Crosby because we went pretty long with Jack. Um, yes. And it's a really good one, right? So let's get to that. Let's do it. Okay. Jack Crosby um, will be joining the program right after this. Jack, have you seen Avatar? <laughs> I have not. Oh, I have not seen Avatar oh, two yet. Unfortunately, okay. I did see. I did see. I have not seen Avatar two AR, but I did see uh, M three again uh, the other night. <laughs> How was that? That looks like a lot, like a lot of fun. Yeah, that looks like a lot yeah. of fun. Oh, it was. It was great. It was great. I laughed. Uh, I gasped. Um, I did not cry. It's uh, not a particularly subtle or sad movie, but um, it's it's a, it's a good time. Allison Williams is having fun. Um, everyone's having fun. That's all I can ask. Whoever plays the weird, creepy doll is assumedly having fun. I don't really know how they did that, whether it's CGI or yeah. like a you know person scuttling around in a mocap suit. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a great time. I just remember when the trailer dropped and seeing the evil doll doing like the TikTok dances and being like, okay, this is like there's something going on here that's going to be that's going to connect with people. That, that scene happens like very far into the movie and it's so just like strange and arbitrary. The movie does, it it, it does a really good job of like setting up this like very like genuinely like creepy situation where you have this doll that like you can tell is slowly getting more and more like sinister and evil. And then at the end of the movie, when all this is revealed, it just goes like, yeah, fuck it. Let's do whatever we want. (laughs) And like all kinds of crazy shit happens. Like there's a scene, like there's the TikTok scene. There's no prompt or like (laughs) reason for Megan to be doing a TikTok dance in that scene. She just like does it and then murders someone. And it's like, why was she doing a TikTok dance? And they're like, I think it's literally because they just wanted that scene for the trailer. Yeah of the doll doing the, yeah. And it, you know, it worked. It's good. It's a great time. Fully endorse. Yeah. And Probably a better use of your money than avatar too. Mm, that's yeah, agree. that's I, all I, I'm I, saying. I Sorry. Actually, it, both of you, I should need to correct both of you. That's a uh, official best picture nominee avatar, the way of water. <laughs> Let's put some respect on James Cameron's name. Okay. Who was robbed by the way for best directing Oscar as well. Not that I care or get too invested in that kind of stuff, but if you're going to nominate the movie for best picture, Best visuals, best sound design, and all that stuff. Cameron, where's where's Cameron's best director? Not, I don't know. It's so I'm not that, happy about this. There's no though. way. There's no. I haven't even seen it, and I know there's no way it would get better. Uh, it would win over everything, everywhere, all at once. That movie is unbelievable. That movie kicks so much ass. And what I'm afraid of in this, I didn't care for it. Oscars. I'm a big Oscars head. I think we've talked about this. Over the past yeah, we did. Years. Yeah. I'm yeah. a big Oscars head. I love it. Uh, I am afraid of like a Steven Spielberg sweep because he, his movie mm-hmm. that I only heard of for the first time when they announced the nominations, is it called like the Fablemans? The Fablemans. Yeah. I haven't seen it. It is such a fucking Oscars ploy type movie. It is like, 
Any movie about the movies the, is gonna is yes, uh, one of those. Yes, yeah. fucking Birdman it, was not the best picture of that mm. year, but it played into that fear that they all have of being irrelevant. It's something that's on the at the forefront of all of Hollywood's minds. So they're like, oh. This is me. I can relate to this. Best picture. No, it fucking wasn't. And that's what I worry about. This is what it's going. This is going. To, this is what it's going to happen. Because there's so many better movies. I haven't even seen Tar, and it looks phenomenal compared to The Fablemans. But I do hope everything, every, everywhere, all at once, just sweeps it. I yeah, I haven't seen Tar yet, and I haven't seen Avatue AR. Um, but I saw everything everywhere. I recently watched uh, the Banshees of Inisherin. Inisherin, Inisherin. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not Irish. I don't understand how to uh, speak their language. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I'm I'm in the minority because I thought that Banshees was actually pretty mid. But um, I hear that Tar's good. So I am a big Spielberg head too. So I don't want to. I'm not just going to write off the Fablemans uh, just because it doesn't fit into Jordan's precious idea of what a <laughs> of what a movie should be. You know, it's the man. It's Spielberg. Come on, he's like he's not it some amateur. Like, he's not amateur. It hour just over looks here. like it's like this movie is like oh <clears throat> this is kind of my life story. This is about the importance of movies and the magic of cinema and it's something <laughs> that you all know and love because it's your whole life and that's why we're all here it's like i'm so fucking tired of those types of movies winning and being heralded as uh, the best of the year best picture best whatever it's like we've got enough movies about the magic of cinema but the one that didn't get the same sort of recognition that i liked was the majestic do you remember that movie <laughs> with jim carrey I think it was. Jim I Carrey. remember that. So, oh, yeah, that's a deep. Yeah, cut, it though. was about like. Yeah, it was about the magic of cinema, and the guy got blacklisted during the Red Scare, and it yeah. was like how he had to <laughs> prove in like a Senate panel that he wasn't like he was. Uh, he shouldn't have been blacklisted just because he was attending communist meetings. I think there's really only one like right way out of this for the Academy, and that's to give Top Gun Maverick Best Picture. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's, you know, like, you, you got to do the right thing. You got to disregard all of this and give it to the actual best movie of the summer. I actually uh, still haven't seen it. I'm a big, I'm a, I'm a Tom Cruise head and a big fan of the original film, but I, I missed it in theaters, and I know it's the theater experience was a big part of what made it a kind of a, entertaining thing so i haven't i haven't gotten around to watching it i do know that the top gun maverick and avatar the way of water would be a great double feature because you get both sides of the imperialist oh, propaganda man. coin you get both you get it from both angles and then you can find you oh, can yeah. find your truth somewhere in the middle you know at, at, well and they're both like cumulatively so dumb that i think it just well. wa- like washes out like you know <laughs> Yeah, no. If I agree with that, that's just but. just just one man's one anti-imperialist yeah. opinion. Seems like the uh, majority of opinions that <laughs> come come on this program. <laughs> Jordan specifically yeah. cultivates yeah. this to torture me. I do. Yeah, Rob's a big <laughs> Avatar head, and I, I just love to razz him about it. And on principle, yeah. I'm just not going to watch it. In part because it's like four hours long, and it just sounds like a miserable experience. You could be doing anything else; I'd be more productive. I rewatched the first Avatar for the first time since probably 2009. I think actually when I was on the plane either to or from – oh, no, it wasn't an Atlanta trip. I think it was coming back from Ukraine one of the times. And I like – you know, got a lot of time to kill. It's a flight from Poland to New York. It's like nine hours or something. So I was like, I guess I'll watch this three-hour – technological masterpiece on the screen. Yeah. Yeah, The screen that's like the size of a notebook in front of my face. Um, And you know what? Uh, It was boring. 
Yeah. But it passed three hours of my time. Uh, it was it was slightly less boring than uh, not watching it. So that's all uh, I got. That's all I got to say about Avatar. I'm, just not, I'm not rising to these provocations anymore. It's I'm just I've learned my lesson. <laughs> well, they're going to keep coming, especially during, once we get closer to We've the. We had Oscars. a couple of heated it's, moments it's, on this. <laughs> on this program in the, the, the blood Kasky interview is when i got really heated <laughs> yeah that was that was actually awkward i was like <laughs> uh, doing the podcast during the interview for our podcast and i'm like i'm actually uncomfortable right now that's how <laughs> that's how heated this conversation about avatar the way of water is but history will vindicate me okay history will vindicate me i, think- I don't need to prove anything to me and my fellow avatar heads you know the people, the people I, I this respect is a, the people. It just crossed two Billy at the box office. The people are with me on this. Rob you know? loves so I feel comfortable. That's the takeaway. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think this, I see this as a necessary corrective to power because I think people like you, Rob, are in the majority. You know, there's more avatar heads out there than there are haters. That's right. Uh, so sometimes you need to be exposed to these points I guess of view. So. I don't want to be in an echo chamber. To, yeah. Get outside your bubble. Your, uh, your avatar underwater bubble. Um, on the t- to go back to, I'm going to see it for the third time soon, Maverick. just to spite you both. That's both psychotic. Of you. That is psychotic. Please don't do that. Both of for you. your own health. Uh, on the Top Gun Maverick topic, I have gained a new appreciation for Tom Cruise after their Mission Impossible, like essentially propaganda videos. But those videos where they're talking about how he does his own stunts and all the time and preparation that goes into these stunts, and then like objectively how extreme some of these things are yeah i watched one where he was like thanking people for going to the movies where he's in the plane if that came out i think last year i remember seeing that and thinking like okay give me a fucking break yeah we get it like you're you're promoting your movie and then recently the one where he's jumping that like motorcycle off that ramp off that cliff and then parachuting and doing it himself i watched that and i was like i'm sold i'm a cruise head i am i am all in like that guy, yeah. like, if you like artists that are like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'm going to go that far, but um, <laughs> if you like artists that are genuinely a little bit psychotic, I mean, he's up there with among the best of them, you know. So you gotta, you gotta I, take I think, the good with the I bad. I think he got in, he got into movies because it would let him publicly display, you know, the talents that he had honed specifically to eliminate the enemies of Scientology and that he's used, <laughs> you know, behind the scenes for years. All those stunts that you see, like he's done that. To a real person, yeah, <laughs> uh, somewhere in the world, he he, uh, he drove a motorcycle uh, and uh, parachuted into the volcano where all the the souls were trapped <laughs> or whatever. Something that's I think that's the mythology. I'm not sure. I might not have so a, that's how he that. went clear. Yeah, all the oh, thetans were Jack, in there or whatever. Jack, on the on the propaganda um, Top Gun point, you have a new podcast also. Uh, where you kind of go through some of these military propaganda films, and you uh, and you uh, talked about American Sniper in your first episode, and that's a movie I've thought a lot about ever since I saw it because I remember seeing it shortly after I had just reread War as a Force That Gives Us Meaning by Chris Hedges. So as I'm watching, mm-hmm. and I was just like, "Holy shit, this is horrifying!" This is like everything he's talking yeah. about in that book. Could you give people an overview of the podcast and some of the things you talk about? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the podcast is called Schlock and Awe. Um, it's myself and a good friend of mine, Evan Hill, um, who's now uh, does sort of visual investigations for the Washington Post. Um, Evan and I have both like covered various different facets of, of conflict and sort of various different bits of U.S. empire for uh, a 
pretty decent amount of our of our journalism careers. Um, and so the podcast, what it does is uh, we're trying to watch every single movie that we can connected to America's kind of global war on terror. So we're focusing mostly on post 9-11 films. Um, 9-11 films themselves are definitely part of this, um, but mostly really trying to focus on the kind of like war movie canon from Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and so, you know, we, we went for American Sniper in our first episode because it that's just, it felt in some ways kind of to be like the pinnacle of that jingoism. Um, it was really interesting watching it. I hadn't seen American Sniper until we watched it for this podcast because I think when it came out and like, as you can tell from my feelings on Top Gun Maverick, uh, and like, I am a guy, I love a dumb, bad war movie, like yeah. jingoism. Like I don't, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those, I get sometimes actual pleasure, sometimes guilty pleasure where, you know, you get to just kind of tune out and imagine a world where everyone is uh, a macho operator and every, the United States really is under attack, uh, a hundred percent of the time. And you need to go red dawn mode at any moment, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. That to me, like I can't play airsoft anymore. So, like you know, that's that's where you that's where that's where you got to get got it banned, out. You got banned um, from the facility for being a tier one operator. You're just, yeah. you're just too good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I actually I haven't played airsoft since I was a kid. And and briefly, it's funny. Evan and I were talking about this uh, a couple of years ago, I think, which fits. So the podcast came. We were backpacking and we watched. Um, we watched The Outpost, the the movie based on Jake Tapper's book of the same name, which is about a, a bunch like an outpost of soldiers in Afghanistan. Um, the book is like Tapper doing trying to do like a Sebastian Younger imitation, but it just like doesn't hit the same because like unlike Younger, Tapper like wasn't actually in Afghanistan. <laughs> like he did like a couple of trips there or something. He like talked that. to so many troops though. Um, it was like he was there. He respects them so exactly. much. Yeah, 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 yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's like yeah. Tapper basically like Brian Williams versioning <laughs> like an embedded reporter's book. Um, you know, and it's it's a well-researched book or whatever, but they made this movie out of it, which is it's like it's like every bad cliche of a US war movie wrapped into one, but it says so much less than like like American Sniper is also like that. But American Sniper, I think, goes so deep into it and is such a like clear sort of like prestige play that it's much more interesting to think about as like this cultural sort of like piece of, because you know, it American sniper broke through. We talk about this in the, in the episode broke through with the American public in a way that like few Iraq and Afghanistan war movies have. Um, It was absolutely massive. It was, I think nominated for best picture as well. Um, And it's also terrible. The Outpost is a different kind of terrible. We were watching The Outpost uh, on a backpacking trip, like on my phone. And we were like, this is really bad. And we were just riffing about it. And we were like, all right, we should we should do a podcast about this. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. We only have one episode out uh, right now. It's You can find it uh, Schlock and Awe uh, on Substack uh, or on Twitter. Uh, Schlock is S-C-H-L-O-C-K, uh, not S-H-L-O-C-K. We went back and forth on the spelling quite a lot. Um, we're having fun with it. Uh, we're hoping to uh, release an episode. We're going to do, I think zero dark 30, uh, with, uh, Spencer Ackerman at some point pretty soon. And, um, yeah, yeah, that's going to be good. And, uh, and then we've got, um, Kelsey Atherton as well. Who's done eye in the sky with us, which is the little scene, uh, Aaron Paul starring as a drone pilot that has to like, kill kids uh in an, in an african nation 
He feel I imagine uh, he feels a, super bad about it though. Yes, yeah, it's it's very much a movie uh, where uh, Aaron Paul is forced to look sad on camera as he launches Hellfire missiles. Yeah. Um, so I think I think we got some good episodes in the pipeline. We should have we should have more out. The soon. real victims of the American uh, War on Terror couldn't help but notice the the rockin' uh, action movie theme song on that podcast as well. Too very enjoyable stuff. I know the <laughs> the music was provided to us. Uh, you know for for. <laughs> By by a stellar artist, I think who's who's got quite a background in the field. Uh, you know, I think Rob knows him. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, as soon as, as it, it, it is Rob, yeah. Rob did the music. Yeah. As soon as we referenced, the, yeah, we're like, what do we need? Look like a Michael Bay kind of thing, like a sort of a Steven Seagal sort of a vibe. And I was like, oh yeah, I think I can. Yeah, I think I can deliver something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right the in my wheelhouse. We needed real yeah. like eighties eighties y wah Oh, that is such yeah. Rob. That's like right up Rob's alley. Yeah, the, yeah. The no, but it's synth, it, a little bit of hint of. Canadian mall pop. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's my, that's my brand. Um, no, but it is, it's something that I enjoy. Um, I'm glad you guys are doing that podcast because it is something that I enjoy thinking about and talking about a lot. Cause I like the same, like I love a lot of these American propaganda movies. Like I love Top Gun and I imagine I would enjoy the sequel, even though like I understand politically the sequel, it's basically, it's basically about if I like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like about Iran essentially and totally presenting yes. a, like without actually mentioning Iran and totally presenting a totally revisionist, ahistorical take on like how the Iran deal yes. played out and just a completely falsified pro-America version of like how that, how that situation has unfolded and providing this justification for the, the U S air force to just go in and bomb them with impunity. Right. Something along those lines. Right. Again, I haven't seen it, but I imagine even despite this harmful nature, I would still enjoy it. Yeah. I think what I'm learning through, through this podcast as well is that, I can definitely enjoy like Top Gun. I can enjoy as a movie that is, that is pure, like it's fantasy. It is so divorced from reality. I feel like that if you are tricked into, if you actually believe the sort of world that it's selling and sure there are insidious bits of it. Like people might not understand the nuances of like that. Their fake are on being like fully that fake. But I think people kind of understand that Top Gun in general is not like, actually meant to sort of be an artistic reimagining of any part of the historical record. Like it's, it's essentially a fantasy movie. Whereas things like American Sniper take the same sort of like overt jingoism, but then it's grafted onto the, the like narrative that they want people to believe about what the United States is, is so much more rooted in like actual, politics and world events in those movies. Um, American Sniper does an incredibly effective um, sort of like streamlining of the like 9-11 to Afghanistan to Iraq pipeline so much so that like there's almost no Afghanistan step in there because Chris Kyle, the sniper only served in Iraq when he was a Navy SEAL. He didn't actually have deployments in Afghanistan and the movie just seamlessly flows you through so well that you don't like it takes you a second to register like wait we just connected 9-11 directly to the invasion of iraq which yeah which is not a thing but the movie does it so well that you're just like oh yeah of course like you know 9-11 happens and then the boys are all like we're going and you forget that it's like that was three years later in a completely different war yeah um so you know i i think i think that movies like that to me and the sort of scope of American like military propaganda and jingoism are a lot more 
dangerous, I guess, and a lot more sort of like insidious than stuff like Top Gun, which is just like, I mean, the, the plot of Top Gun is like plane go fast, you know, and like, it's true. Plane, plane do true, go yeah. fast. And it's, it's cool to see, you know? Yeah. I think that can be kind of, kind of thing where people can, you know, recognize when, you know, the American entertainment industry is kind of involved in this kind of propaganda and suggest that like, you know, if you want to be socialist, if you want to be anti-imperialist, you can never enjoy any of this stuff. You can never enjoy any of American culture. And I think you can, like, I love a lot of this stuff, but it's really important to be able to understand exactly how and why it's harmful and how it's working on you and how it's working on others. And then you can, then you can enjoy it, you know, but it's, I think it's really important to have at least that yeah. critical analysis if you're going to sit down and watch this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I feel guilty with some of them. And that's, that's why I stopped playing Call of Duty. I just felt really just gross about all of it. I'm not saying anybody else yeah. should stop if they enjoy the game and if you can compartmentalize and separate, but just the white phosphorus in Warzone that came out in what, 2019, 2020, um, the rewriting of war crimes, this most recent one that <laughs> essentially, uh, kills Soleimani, <laughs> who's just named something different. Like it's just, yeah. it's very weird. And thinking about, this, I mean, really, it was when I was doing that stuff in 2020 around the esports team and their streaming initiatives. That's when I really soured on all of it, and yeah. I couldn't bring myself to play it anymore. So it just switched to Fortnite. Give me the lollipops and gumdrops version. That's fine. At least I can kind of sanitize my killing that way. I think I think when you see things that have a very very clear pipeline to specific results for the U.S. military or to specific like shaping of public opinion like i think if someone joins the navy or joins the air force because of top gun which in the grand scheme of things probably a lot of people have but like i think even if they do so they kind of know that like that's not real that's not really what it's going to be about um whereas i think yeah with with call of duty it's like those games are marketed on like look at the realism we've put into this like the weapons the uniforms the everything is like how it would look in real life and how it would be. And, and the, especially like the story mode campaigns of it, the multiplayer is like, you know, chaos. It does. It's, it's also divorced from reality, but the call of duty campaigns are, have been, especially in the past two iterations have been focused on providing this like very cinematic visceral like experience where you really like feel like you are this like tier one operator taking place in like some of the wildest shit, you could ever imagine, but it like, I, I think, I think the, the, the sort of pipeline to convincing people that that's like a valid way of interacting with the world is a lot more kind of like blatant with call of Duty than it is with some other things. Yeah. I think the, the boomer take is always, well, kids are going to play these games and you hear it across the board. Kids are going to play these games and they're going to think they can respawn. And that's never been the case. No, no, no kid in their right mind has, has, left with that takeaway what call of duty and other military style games do to people's psyches i would argue is that it inflates their sense of ability it gives them the impression that they have like you're pointing out because of the situation in these games and the role you play in them it inflates their sense of ability especially with hand-eye coordination and the ability to aim and fire a gun at a target at somebody at something and quote remaining cool under pressure that type of stuff and it's just not it's not analogous because as i mean i haven't seen it up close i 
refused to enlist when I was a kid, despite some people in my life trying to push me into doing it to shape up. Uh, but I mean, Jack, you've seen it. It is it is not as neat and tidy as it is in a video game. You know, war is just yeah. unspeakably evil and heinous and something that even the most resilient humans can't really comprehend and process. Yeah. And I, and I think, yeah, Call of Duty really delivers such a kind of sanitized version of that. And um, to me, I guess on the recruiting front, what makes it so bad is that even when they're showing, even if a kid watches that and thinks like, and is, you know, shrewd enough to realize like, all right, I'm not, I'm not actually going to be a Delta Force sniper just because like, I'm really good at flick shots in Call of Duty, you know, but I think what they can see sometimes is they see that the, there's sort of a subtler effect in the storyline of those games that they're all about like these like manly brotherhoods coming together to like solve the world's problems. And the values are all like heroism and like the soldiers in them, like, lift each other up and it's no man left behind. And like, they're all like, everyone's working together to establish their goal for a good cause. And they don't show like that, that you know, 90% of the army is doing like incredibly stupid, humiliating things, uh, extremely repetitive things for days on end and not doing anything in terrible living conditions while the entire structure around you just like fucks up and misuses resources and abuses one another and passes every terrible thing down the line to the people below them. Like being in the army sucks. Like those, those brotherhood things are are real, but like being in any sort of organized fighting force is like 90% just like constant sort of like drudgery and punishment. And yeah, it's interesting too. Cause one film that really tried to, uh, show this on screen was the film Jarhead with Jake Gyllenhaal and the Sam Mendes film yeah. in the early 2000s or mid 2000s around, which is funny because what I didn't realize was that the Jarhead franchise apparently continued on into like a direct to DVD form format, which is now the exact opposite of that. And now it is about like tier yes. one operators and all that bullshit when the original film is exactly yeah. describing what you uh, pointed out, which is that it sucks to be in the military. It's not exciting. Yeah. You're spending a lot of time just sitting around doing nothing and going crazy. I found that so funny. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, not that we should well, talk about this for the whole the rest of the podcast as well, but also I, I just think it's interesting. <laughs> also, you know, <laughs> um, talking about the original Top Gun, I think it's kind of fascinating that it came out ten years after the end of Vietnam, when there was still with the American military was the approval ratings were at an all time low, and people had a really low opinion of the American military, especially the Army. And Top Gun was kind of an effort on the part of uh, you know the Defense Department invests in all this shit. And to create a film and take the focus away from the army and put it on the cool, high-flying naval aviators. And yeah. it was a huge success. Yeah. And it really actually did have a genuine impact on people's perceptions of the U.S. military Yeah, uh, afterwards. And convinced an entire generation, basically, that like aerial dogfights in fighter planes were actually still a thing that were ever going to happen yeah. again. We're <laughs> like, still buying F-35s now. Canada's fucking buying F-35s today in 2023. Yeah. What do we need yeah. them for? I don't know. No one can explain it, but let's buy them yeah. anyways, I guess. Fuck it. Do they fly? Do they fly in the rain? Shows. I don't think so. But if it's cloudy, <laughs> I know. But I guess we still need to do it anyways. Yeah. 
Thank you, Do you guys Top ever Gun. go to air shows? Do they have air shows in Canada, Rob? <laughs> yeah, they, they got air shows in Canada. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't know what you guys do <laughs> yeah. up there. <clears throat> we, I don't know if we we've taken the planes. Do the planes all fly upside yeah, down? We, yeah, we poke our heads out of our igloos <laughs> and uh, we go, yeah. oh, look at the magic flying machine that we don't have this technology yeah. up here. Yeah. So it's very exciting. Dude, for when the... you guys get electricity, it's going to be a game changer. <laughs> 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 oh, oh man. I, I was i was i went to so many air shows as a kid I, I don't want to say i was like dragged to because as a child i did the think it was cool, really yeah. cool so it, i was totally yeah. willing to go and then in retrospect it's like holy shit that is a really sophisticated and savvy marketing tool for the military because like you know every branch is there recruiting with with tables and uh especially uh especially the air force but all of them are there uh, and then you yeah. go and you're just kind of dazzled by all these historic planes and kind of selling this myth of war through all these historic battles and some of them victories. And then like you get either the Thunderbirds or the Blue Angels at each one. And that is just that's a that's a fucking ride. Those are so cool. Um, that's that's my guilty pleasure with the military is seeing two F-14s or F-16s just flying at each other. And then at the last second, just like turning. And oh, that's just, yeah. just that's so fun to watch as a kid. Which is why Top Gun Maverick is good and other movies aren't because the core thesis of it is plane go fast. And yeah. everyone can agree, politics aside, that when a plane goes really fast, it's cool. That's pretty cool. Like, there's no, And there's no shame in that. You can – like everyone can agree without shame that plane go fast, awesome. <laughs> and you talked about an American sniper too. The uh, the the link they make between nine eleven and Iraq, and the other film you mentioned too, Zero Dark Thirty. And in Zero Dark Thirty, they make an explicit link between torture and the capture of Osama bin Laden. And that's what it has. It yeah. takes this kind of like this kind of political stance of like, well, yeah, torture. You know, it's really ugly and disturbing, and it it makes people miserable that have to do it. But it does give up the goods, and that's how we ended up doing this. It like, gets that's results. the that's yep. the purpose of that movie, which was still was created in like with input from the CIA and the the State Department as well. Like it's it's very insidious. Yeah, but yeah. again, happy you guys are doing this podcast on your show. Now we're taking that conversation here. <laughs> we're ruining it now for. Future. We're, no, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have a good time. Okay. We're gonna have a good, good time on that episode. Lots more to come from yeah. that. Schlock and awe. Good. Have a listen. The longest the longest post- podcast plug segment we've ever done <laughs> on this show. I'll take it. Yeah, I I'll I really enjoy like talking it. about this kind of stuff though. So I'm, like I was saying earlier, I'm glad you guys are doing it. Jordan, you want to hit us with yep. the transition to the actual subject matter that we're here to discuss? Absolutely. Uh, from one horror show to another. Jack, you you have spent time over the past several months, going back to last year, in Atlanta, where a proposal for a new state-of-the-art, dazzling police training facility in Mock Town, including buildings that can be burned down, a mock nightclub, shooting range, driving courses, some of which will be at the taxpayer's expense, but all for cops in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. which would also require the deforestation of one of the city's big forests. And Atlanta is a city in in a forest, essentially, has a ton of tree canopy. But there are activists who have been living in the forest and are pushing back against this. And neighboring communities, uh, overwhelmingly black communities, also don't like it. And their their opposition at the city council was not heard. We're talking 17 hours of public testimony, a vast majority of which was in opposition to this plan. But the city 
went ahead with it anyway, and now a ton of major corporations are helping fund this new cop city uh, in what is now the forest, but will not be the forest anymore because it would require deforestation to to build it. Jack, could you give us an overview of what's happening? And you've written a couple pieces now for Rolling Stone about this, and I'm really hoping you could, as you do in the piece, describe to our listeners what you saw when you spent time there, who you talked with, the the living conditions and style, and why they're there as police now try to push them out. And then we'll get into uh, the more uh, depressing and recent yeah. developments. Yeah. So um, I I got there at the end of July, I think, is when I did the reporting for this story. It was kind of whirlwind time in my life. Um, uh, yeah, the story was in the September issue of Rolling Stone. Uh, it's called The Battle for Cop City. Um, I kind of saw the story of the Atlanta rainforest, uh, sorry, not rainforest, the Atlanta forest, uh, I saw, I think, like, you know, maybe just a Twitter thread about it way back in, um, must have been like May or June or something like that. Um, just kind of talking about like what this force was and what was going on. And um, there hadn't been a huge amount of coverage of it at the time. And so I just kind of thought like, sure, I'll reach out. I'll see what's going on. Um, I started, uh, I just kind of reached out to the general Instagram accounts for this this sort of movement, as it calls itself, called uh, Defend Atlanta Forest, uh, which they or defend the forest. Uh, they, they like to abbreviate it DTF, um, and get a big, big kick out of that being referred to as DTF. Um, and, and I started talking with some of the people that were running the accounts and I kind of explained who I was and what I was doing. Um, and, uh, then this kind of got backburnered for like a couple of weeks. Um, and it all sort of like came up in a rush. Um, my, my editor got in touch with me and he was like, Hey, do you still want to do that Atlanta story? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's like this week of action that's coming up this weekend. And he was like, great, let's just do it. Just go down there. And he was like, uh, I flew down there and he was like, go spend a hundred bucks at Walmart, get whatever camping equipment you can. And just like go out there and like, if you're going to do it, like actually do it, just go out there, sleep in the forest, see what happens. Um, and so when I got there, that's, I mean, that's pretty much what I did. I just kind of rocked up and uh, there were a bunch of people sort of hanging out at this gazebo. Um, the forest is a roughly triangular area of land. I think uh, combined it's it's uh, like 130 acres or something like that, um, maybe a little bit more. Um, it's split uh, by a creek kind of into two sides, sort of a west side and an east side. The west side of the forest is where Cop City is going to be built. Um, that is land that is owned by the city of Atlanta and has been leased, I think, for like a dollar um, to the Atlanta Police Foundation, which has said that it has the funding from all these corporations. Uh, as you as you say, the Atlanta Police Foundation is like the, the um, nonprofit that all the police departments have. So it's not the Atlanta Police Department itself, which is publicly funded. It's like the private sort of like nonprofit foundation that supports the Atlanta police department. Um, so the, uh, Atlanta police foundation, the APF, uh, wants to build this massive cop training center, which as you said, um, something like a $90 million price tag, uh, over 80, 85 acres of, of the forest that the city land, um, has. And on the other side of it is, uh, what was formerly a public park. It was called entrenchment Creek park. Um, the activists there now refer to it as Wilani People's Park. Um, this area of forest uh, was uh, 
first known as the Wilani Forest by the indigenous uh, Muscogee Creek peoples that lived there. Um, the Muscogee Creek Nation is now headquartered in uh, Oklahoma, I think, because they were part of, um, you know, the, the Trail of Tears and Forest Relocation. Um, and uh, the Entrenchment Creek Park side of things, the Wilani Park side of things, is also being developed um, by a major uh, sort of Hollywood soundstage baron named Ryan Millsap, who has agreed with the local authorities that govern that side, it's uh, DeKalb County, Georgia, to swap some land that he has also in the area that he tried to construct on and found was like kind of shitty for this land, which is already a public park, has a public park infrastructure, had like a parking lot and a little gazebo and a paved biking path and then a whole bunch like miles of of, of hiking trails and stuff like that in it. Um, Ryan Millsap's decided that he doesn't want there to be a park there. He wants to take that land and build more sound stages on it to build, to film more Marvel movies and more jingoistic uh, American war movies. He's actually, there's a quote from Ryan Millsap. Um, I don't have it pulled up now, but where he basically says like his goal is he's like anything that's like big and like explosions and jingoistic, like that's what we want to do. Like that's what his company black hall studios um, wants to create. So you've got these two sides sort of coming for the forest. You've got Cop City and you've got what the activists refer to as Hollywood dystopia. And together they're kind of eating away at this area of the South River Forest, which if you look at a map of Atlanta, it's 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 tiny. It's this little, little pocket of forest uh, around. But Atlanta itself is very, it's very heavily wooded. Um, I think it's one of the, the like uh, metropolitan areas in the US with the, the most amount of trees, the densest tree cover. Um, but that amount of tree cover has been steadily shrinking year by year by year as developers push into it. And previously, this uh, area was kind of one of the largest contiguous bits of it that wasn't broken up by any other any other developments and, um, and was sort of like this public space, kind of right in the middle of a lot of uh, mostly black and brown sort of like lower income communities. This was like, it was known in a, in a sort of citywide um a survey that went out, I think, uh, 10 years ago now or something like that. It was called one of the lungs of Atlanta, like this sort of undeveloped patch of green space, which looks very small on the map. You know, there's trees all over the rest of Atlanta, but it was really important that like this specific part of forest stay undeveloped, both for the community around it and just for the kind of long-term ecological sustainability of the city. Um, so when I rolled up there in July... Um, I came in and all of the sort of public park infrastructure was still in place. There were a bunch of people hanging out at this gazebo in a little parking lot. I just kind of drove up, parked in the parking lot, walked up and just started chatting to people, explained who I was. I was like, I'm Jack Crosby. I'm a reporter from Rolling Stone, et cetera, et cetera. And um, people were a little suspicious at first. You know, there, there was very much um, in these movements, There's there's a very kind of strong security culture, which we'll talk about in a bit. But once they kind of sussed out, you know, I was like, you can Google me. Like I'm very visible. Like I know that I look like a cop. Like I can't do <laughs> anything about the fact that like I'm a, I'm a six foot, 210 pound white guy with a big old mustache. You know, you like I get it. Mustache. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's just, it's, a, it's a part of the whole thing now. And, and you gotta, you gotta take it or leave it. Uh, this is who I am. Um, and, and so I walked up and, and, uh, I was, uh, I was introduced to a handful of, they, they call themselves forest defenders. 
And um, eventually one told me that they were uh, going to just kind of show me through the forest, uh, show me into where the camps are. And we kind of walked through And along the way, um, the forest defender was uh, like describing where all these things had happened. Um, they showed me like this barricade and they were like, yeah, they tried to bring a bulldozer in here like a month ago, but like we fought it off. Like we were throwing rocks at it. We made this barricade with like fences and we eventually got it to like back out. Um, and I was like, wow. So that's like, you know, this is like a, this is a pretty militant thing. Like this is, you know, they're not playing around. And then we got into the public areas, the kind of common areas of the forest. And, and the main area is this space of the forest called the living room. Um, and it's all kind of like, Southern, uh, I don't know what they're like sugar pines or something like that. Um, you know, if we got any, you know, big tree guys that are listening, uh, don't come for me here. Uh, I didn't look up specifically the type of pines, but it's this like richly just sort of carpeted in pine needles, this like open area. It's silent. Um, if you're listening to this and you live in a major kind of metropolitan city, um, especially like New York or DC or something like that, you can go to parks in these cities. Like if you go to Central Park in New York and you get as deep as you possibly can in New York or in, in Central Park, it's still very clear that you're in New York City. Um, this section of the Atlanta forest is not like that. Despite the fact that it's like, two minutes from a freeway, basically, when you get deep enough into those trees, it is the rest of the world completely drops off. And it is, it was honestly, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful, gorgeous uh, experience. And I got into the the middle of this, this area. And um, you start to see all of this sort of like infrastructure that they had built down there. There was like, there was a welcome tent, there was a medics tent, there were um, a bunch of people just like hanging around in this area as if it was a living room uh, a little further down the hill. Um, there was like a camp kitchen that they had set up. They had uh, big water reservoirs uh, with, with uh, long uh, flexible tubes that had been run up to the nearest, like the paved bike path where they would like truck in drinkable water that would come down into these for use for, for cooking and cleaning um, the kitchens had these this like ingenious sort of system of like uh, foot pumped like bucket sinks and stuff so that they could that would run water into one bucket of a sink that would then drop down through a filter into a second bucket and then get pumped right back up to the top. So like for gray water uh, retention and stuff like that. Um, and there were at, at the time it was one of these weeks of action. There were probably. 100, 150 people or so just like camping in this forest spread out. They kind of, you, when you were walking through these trails, you'd think like, okay, I've seen most of the camps. I'm kind of getting a figure on the number of people in here. And then you turn a corner, you'd come to another clearing and there'd be another like six tents set up. And there'd be someone next to a campfire in the middle that would just be like, oh, hey, like, who are you? What are you doing? Um, and it was this, it was this wonderful, like, strange, bizarre, like vibrant community. Um, I was there for what they call a week of action where they had, um, they had a stage set up with a generator and everything like that. And they were having essentially a music festival the whole weekend. Uh, they were having local bands play, um, punk bands, um, rap artists. Um, they had like actually, you know, some like reasonably well-known local and regional, um, acts that were coming through and just playing these shows way back in the forest. Um, and this was kind of, the ethos of the movement very much was like, we're reclaiming this land in, in a way that, and, and creating an autonomous community in a way that was felt very different from past, uh, the sort of like chaos of past occupation protests like that. Like we saw in 2020, the, uh, the like Chaz and chop areas and things. And I think that was because it, it was all built around a very kind of concrete idea that they wanted to preserve this specific part of forest 
And of course, like all these people had bigger ideas. They saw the links between this, between um, it not only being an ecological protest, but a, a, an anti-police protest, an abolition protest, or um, just a general sort of anarchist liberation thing. But the, the concrete goal was they were here to protect this forest and everything they did fed back into that. And it created, I think, a much more stable community than some of these other occupation protests that have sprung up where a lot of people have different ideas of what they want to do with the space and what their goal is in the space. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's, that's kind of what I saw in July is this, this community that sprung up out of, out of nowhere that was very sort of viscerally under attack from a lot of different people. Um, on the second to last day that I was there on Saturday, I woke up in my tent to someone walking through camp and, um, like, I think there was someone like banging a pot in a pan or whatever. And someone just yelling repeatedly as they walked through camp, like the police are coming. If you're parked in the entrenchment Creek park trailhead, they said they're coming with a tow truck. They're going to start towing vehicles and starting demolition of the, of the thing. Like everybody get up. Like we have to defend this. Everybody get up. And so I've got a rental car that like, I can't really afford to get that towed. Um, so I get out there and I, I go and I get in my car and, um, there's a few cop cars outside and, uh, this uh, big like work truck with an earth mover on a flatbed on the back of it. Like one of these big kind of bobcat things. And um, apparently the earth mover had moved off of it and just taken a swipe at this big gazebo. And there's a huge chunk out of it and there were people in it and everyone's mad and everyone's shouting. I move my car like around the corner and park it kind of on the street and then immediately come back. And as I'm doing this, more and more people are pouring into the parking lot. This started at like eight o'clock in the morning on a Saturday after a Friday night in which like the DJ sets were going until like four in the morning. So everyone's like hungover and tired and sweaty. It's the end of July in Atlanta. And as we do this more and more people just start kind of like melting out of the forest into the parking lot dressed in like head to toe camo, like ghillie suits, like everything like that. And things get like progressively just more and more militant. Like people start throwing rocks at the earth mover. They start throwing full uh, cans of seltzer. Uh, There's this crazy story about how um, there was a seltzer company in Brooklyn that had gone out of business at the beginning of the pandemic and food, not bombs bought their entire leftover inventory for like four cents a can or something like that and just donated. So the forest defenders had like literally thousands of cans of this uh, like bespoke Brooklyn seltzer company that actually like tasted terrible. Um, the lemon ginger flavor tastes exactly like toilet bowl cleaner. Uh, and it's kind of ruined it to me. So they were using, they were just throwing these at the earth mover, the cops, there were only two cops car there. They couldn't do anything. The driver of the truck eventually just kind of retreated on foot. The earth mover, earth mover guy like drove the earth mover out of the parking lot and they left the tow truck there. And these like much more sort of militant activists or, might have been the same people that I'd just seen the, at, at the at the festival the previous day. They're fully anonymized in, in ghillie suits, just rip this truck apart and set it on fire. And that was like, that was like, they're very much like, like, it's this happy, wonderful, joyful community. And then when it comes down to it, no one's fucking around. Um, and so that was kind of like the two sides of the protest. And for a while, the cops would go in and do raids. They did raids over the summer, but the, the fear was always that, the state has the power in this scenario. The Georgia police and the combined Georgia law enforcement communities have the power to destroy this camp at any time. They just have to come in enough force and come prepared to do enough violence to do so. 
And in, in sort of the middle of December this year, they started that process. Um, there were really significant raids in the middle of December. Uh, they started um, for kind of the first time in earnest assaulting the tree sits, which were a core feature of this protest. It's a tactics that's been learned from other environmental protests. They're essentially tree houses high up in some of the highest trees. And it's a direct attempt to stop deforestation because it's, you know, it's, it's like uh, standing in front of the tank at Tiananmen Square, lying down in front of the bulldozer at a construction thing. You can't cut trees down with people in them. So these tree sits were occupied most of the time 24-7 by someone that had to be holding it down in the trees. Um, and in the December raids for the first time, they'd done this a little bit before in different places, but they started really going after those tree sits, um, bombarding them with with pepper balls and, and pepper spray. And um, I think there were uh, they were also at one point using like the LRAD system, like this sort of sound wave things that's just like agony. You know, they were just pointing that up, LRADing people for hours to try and get people to come down and then making arrests. And they ended up making, I think, seven arrests in December. And this was the first time that they charged these people with domestic terrorism, not with previously arrested been with trespass, um, sometimes with, you know, assault and stuff like that. If they arrested people that they thought had been doing the rock throwing or Molotov cocktail throwing and stuff like that. In reality, these arrests were usually whoever they could get their hands on and then they'd slap with the most convenient charges based on anything they had seen. Um and so December, that was when things really, you know, kind of took a turn. And there was a little bit more of downtime over the holidays. And then we saw um, on January, I believe it just over a week ago, um, on January 18th, they, they came in in force again. And they essentially, they cleared the entire forest this time. They took down every single tree sitter. They cleared the people uh, in the park. They smashed up all of the public infrastructure. They destroyed the kitchen. They uprooted trees. Um, And at one point, uh, they shot a forest defender, a protester, um, and killed them uh, in the middle of the forest. The police claim this was, so this was the death that you've you've probably heard about by now. The police claim that uh, the forest defender uh, who went by the name uh, Tortuguita uh, shot first. There was a police officer who was shot. Um, but according to everyone I've spoken to, uh, I just got back from there uh, yesterday. Um, everyone I've spoken to, there were no other witnesses besides Tortuguita and the police. There weren't any other defenders there because there was this large scale raid that had sort of begun. So people had fled. Tortuguita was still in the tent that they were, or it was sort of a hammock underneath uh, some tarps in a tree. And they, there was something happened and they died and a police officer was shot. Um, well, fortunately, cops never lie or obfuscate these kinds of things uh, or never have in the past. Right. So I think it's important just to take what they say as pure gospel <laughs> on this and just report it as, as fact. Right. That's but the job worry. of journalists. Uh, don't worry. Their body cam footage will surely show. Wait, hold on. I'm just getting it, getting an update. Oh, yeah. They say mm. there's body cam footage from the day, but not of that. Unfortunately, because we they were yeah. too far <laughs> from where that happened, which is something I read that statement <sighs> earlier today and haven't been able to comprehend how it could be too far for anyone's body cam footage to capture. But somehow they were close enough to kill this person. Yeah. So th- there's all kinds of... um there's all kinds of different like evidence and counter evidence and, and, and stuff like this among this, you know, the cops say uh, the people that were actually involved in, uh, in the incident were uh, Georgia state patrol. And those officers often don't wear body cams, but like the force was full of cops. 
like absolutely full of cops. This was a multi-agency raid. They had SWAT teams. They had um, Georgia Bureau of Investigations, the state troopers, the Atlanta police, the DeKalb County sheriffs, like all of these people in there. Like there, there, there is absolutely more evidence out there of what happened in this than, than what the police are saying. And yet, I, I don't think any rational person or journalist should trust immediately law enforcement's first account of what happened. Um, I don't really want to speculate further than that. Yeah. Um, as I said, this was an autonomous movement. Um, they were very clear on that. So it enabled each person participating in it to use whatever methods they wanted to, to resist, uh, to resist the police. Um, I personally, when I was down there in July, I didn't see any firearms. I didn't see anyone with guns. I didn't see anyone really even talking about guns or thinking about using them. It was sort of my understanding that the activists in the forest realized that the, uh, that the sort of uh, balance of force was never going to favor them, that this was going to have to be a protest that you see in the ways of, in, in like Israel, Palestine, where you're trying to use sometimes peaceful and sometimes violent to a certain extent methods to resist a force that has overwhelming, like lethal superiority, where you have to throw rocks at tanks because if you shoot, then they will kill you. And you're, and you're like, you know, so you're using both assuming that risk in order to violently resist in, in the hope that, that, you know, the, the, the act of killing you would be worth worse for the people in there. So if, if that makes sense, so that like, I'm not, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> it was not a purely nonviolent movement, although some people were, but I think there was sort of an understanding. I, I, I was surprised to hear that a protester was allegedly involved in like a shootout with police. It's not something that I would completely rule out. I don't know what was in the heart of every person in the forest, but it's also not, um, it's something that I, I, I was, I was very surprised by and needs that, a lot more skepticism and a lot more of an investigation. Yeah. That person specifically towards the Gita, the levers, uh, one of the levers reporters, uh, looked up past interviews, past, you know, reporting on the, the, these protesters and, they specifically had publicly preached nonviolence. So this claim yeah. by the police also doesn't align with this own person's comments on record. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like, I, uh, I don't know. I, I, it was difficult when I was down there. So I, I was just down in Atlanta the past week. Um, uh, I was doing a little bit more reporting, uh, for published pieces, but also kind of working on the beginnings of a documentary project on this, um, as well. And I was talking to people, it, it was hard to ask people grieving, you know, you really don't want to ask them like for specific details, uh, about this because I also don't want to, yeah, I don't want it to feel like I'm casting aspersions on, on, on the victim of, of this violence and, and stuff like that. But I, I was at least trying to figure out, I was like, did anyone else see this? Are there any other eyewitnesses besides what the cops say? And, and there, there just weren't in this case, I think the forest was already pretty empty. It was, it was January, you know, it's, it, it was tough. Like it's been cold in Atlanta uh, the past month or so it's been cold and really wet and really rainy. And I think, um, yeah. And so I, I just, I don't, I don't know how we're ever going to really know what happened, but I think in any circumstance, the police are always going to have that imbalance of force. And that means that it's always their responsibility to control the outcome of that. 
And that's something that in America, they, they just absolutely never do, that the outcome is always that a civilian dies. Well, the thing that really sticks out to me about this story, and like Jordan, you touched on this when you were setting it up, which is that, you know, the the kind of lectures that these activists always get are like, why don't you do things the right way? Like, you listen, you don't want you don't want this multi-million dollar corporate sponsored uh, urban warfare training center being built in your community. Well, fine, then do it the right way. You know, vote for the right people, go to the city council meetings, make the phone calls, sign the petitions. That's how you do it. Not with violence, not with militant activism, but like you're pointing out, Jordan, like people have in this community have done it the right way they've gone to the meetings they've said repeatedly that they don't that that they don't want this facility in their community and this is kind of what happens when people do things through these official channels and try to register their their the fact that they're against this they vote for like the democratic party and the atlanta is run top to bottom by democrats in the in the city government Mm -hmm. um and they do things the right way and their wishes are just completely ignored and all these options just get slowly taken off the table until militant resistance is the only thing that's left over. Um, and yeah, it's yeah. a situation where the, where obviously the state has the monopoly on violence and slowly all these, all these different uh, uh, avenues get stripped away until this militant resistance is the only thing that's left. And then of course, of course cops are f- just forced to go in there and brutalize these communities and arrest people uh, inevitably people end up getting hurt. People get killed in this process like we're seeing. And then that leads to an even more militant reaction and more protests and cop yeah. cars getting burned and windows getting smashed. And then the finger wagging lectures come out. Why are you, why are you sinking to their level? And why are you resorting to this violence and property destruction? But this has been like an ongoing thing of months and months and months of people trying to do things peacefully, people trying to do things through official political channels, yeah. having their wishes completely ignored and the escalation is coming from the cops. It's coming from the state who have refused to back down on any of this. And now have just escalated and escalated it. Now their uh, protesters are being killed. And that's just that's yeah. just escalating it even further. And they're going to use that to justify further crackdown, I'm sure. But this is the kind of sick uh, catch-22 that goes on in these situations where it, the militant resistance is the only thing that's left over for people to do. And when people engage in that kind of militant protest, then they get lectured and they get assaulted by state violence even more. Yeah. I mean, that was what drew me to the story in in the first place. Um, a lot of a, a thread that I've really sort of been trying to explore and pull on a lot more in my work over the past like year or so is is what what kind of the end point of politics is, what happens in the world when these sort of structural tools that we have just fail or don't work. Like what do people do after that? Or what happens when, what happens to people who are trying to affect change or trying to just, you know, protect themselves when the, yeah, the structural system and tools that we have fails them entirely and doesn't protect them. Um, So, and I, I think that's really kind of what happened here. Um, And what's disconcerting to me is seeing the kind of next step of what the state is doing. And it, it's, it's, it's more, unfortunately, more sophisticated and more kind of like brutal than just simply going through and breaking up protests um, in 2020. Like, you know, the, the police departments all over the country in 2020 kind of were given some signal or had the cultural latitude to really just let fly. And do we saw just brutal arrests all over the place, brutal, brutal behavior in a way like I'd attended massive street protests in New York City um, before the 2020 protests. And I had never seen the NYPD reacting to those in the way that they did. 
a lot um, of the time escalating it, what were peaceful protests into more violent protests and into riots, yes. you know, after militarized yes. police showed up. And we're so we're seeing the next step of that in Atlanta now. And and how it works um, is you can you can see this playing out exactly how it works. So the domestic terrorism charges, which seem so like mind boggling and strange, um, but the narrative has been completely dominated by, you know, the Georgian government and um, and the right wing media and just saying like, yeah, these people are scary Antifa terrorists, you know, throwing uh, you throw one Molotov cocktail, which people already associate with terrorists, you know, and people are like, oh, maybe they are domestic terrorism. Georgia's domestic terrorism law was put into place after the Dylan Roof shootings to try and codify some form. And when that was when that was put in place, progressives and other people said this law is going to be used to effectively criminalize almost any kind of protest in a public space. And if, and and that is exactly what we've seen happening. So it starts with that. It starts with the domestic terrorism charges leveled in December on people. Then it goes to the domestic terrorism charges leveled again on people in the forest. But what what the wild thing was and when the, this this hand really kind of got tipped is that the protesters arrested on Saturday night this weekend. There was a massive street protest in Atlanta um, against Tortuguita's killing. And as a, a, I'm sure you've seen the footage, you know, there were a couple of cop cars that were burned. Protesters smashed um, the front windows of uh, like the Deloitte building in downtown Atlanta, which is also where the Atlanta Police uh, Foundation has their headquarters um, and a couple of other places. Um, and the protesters that were arrested at that protest on Saturday night were also charged with domestic terrorism. They brought it out of the forest to basically say, if you are arrested for doing anything in connection to this movement whatsoever, you're going to get a felony domestic terrorism charge. And I watched, um, I was with a different group. I got kind of split off onto a side street as the, the cops were moving in. I missed most of the arrest behind, but I saw footage of it later, um, and some of the people that they arrested and are now being charged with domestic terrorism, I watched them and I was with that protest the entire time. There were people that were holding the big banners in front. And that was their job in the protest, that they were holding the banners and they were marching. And did those people know were they part of some of the same crews or something like that? Is the people actually doing the, the smashing? Maybe. Sure. Who knows? But those people, their specific actions, I watched them for like 45 minutes of marching as they were just holding the banner. And several of those people got immediately tackled and taken down by cops. And they're being charged with domestic terrorism, where in the harshest sense of, of the law, that oh, for a well-documented hour-long protest, maybe the only crime they could be conceivably charged with is like obstructing a roadway or something like that. Like they were marching down the street holding a banner. And those, and now, so, so what Atlanta has done and what Brian Kemp has done is he has said, if you try to speak up as part of this movement in any way, we are immediately going to slap you with a domestic terrorism charge. Um, and earlier today, uh, the Georgia announced that they were calling in the National Guard. They're continuing to escalate this. And it's, 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 a, it's a very open sort of ploy to try and quash this movement entirely by saying the you can no longer expect anything you do in this to just result in a misdemeanor or you get, you get charged with trespassing or you do something like that, which are things that activists go into knowing that they like, they're going to come up against that. They've got the jail support. They got the bail support. They can fight these charges. They're going to be able to move through it. Georgia is basically taking the nuclear option and saying, if you put one toe onto the street in a black boot, 
we're going to slap you with domestic terrorism charges. We're going to beat the shit out of you. And we're going to try and put you in prison for as long as we possibly can. And, you know, if that's the way that the state is going to respond to legitimate protest in the future, like it doesn't look good. Yeah, fucking sinister. And you were mentioning before we started recording, Jack, that this move to bring in the National Guard by Kemp also uh, coincides with we're recording this on Thursday. Uh, uh, footage of Tyree Nichols's killing by the Memphis police that it's body cam footage is expected to be released on Friday. Now, this is something that yeah. the city and the police in Memphis have pushed to delay. The family has seen it. It seems like everybody who has seen it is expecting mass, uh, you know, unrest, like nationwide, because this is expected to be so bad. And in that instance, uh, five officers in Memphis essentially beat someone to death. They're, they're you know, the, the, the splitting hairs is they beat this guy borderline to death on the street and then he died in the hospital. But that is a direct result of the police officer's actions. And what's really telling here is they were all fired. They were all charged with murder. The White House put out a preemptive statement. The city officials there put out a preemptive statement. They've warned businesses in the area to get uh, unrest insurance, uh, civil unrest insurance, because they know when people see this video, it's going to be bad. Not just in Memphis, nationwide. Perhaps a similar reaction nationwide like we saw with George Floyd. And they're releasing it on a Friday night, which is what anybody in the government typically does to try to bury a story so they could say they released it but they're doing it hopefully when fewer people will notice and now at the same time you have this development in atlanta and in georgia that those two storylines and incidents converging could be very very bad uh could you preview i guess what you fear or worry or expect could happen in atlanta over the next few days yeah so to a certain extent, these 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 forest protests, um, they've been big, but they've been to a certain extent kind of limited. They haven't broken into the mainstream um, in a way that the 2020 protests did. You know, they're still kind of being organized um, by a very, you know, strong core of um people who are who are often the core of a lot of a lot of protest movements, you know, people uh, who are from like local mutual aid groups and, and uh, you know, like the, the, the tried and true activists that are around there. These are the people that show up, you know, at the pipeline protests that nobody hears of that show up and, and things like that, that are really kind of like a core of dedicated local and non-local activists. And, and, and there is community involvement and there's a lot of people from Atlanta that are coming in, particularly during the weeks of action and things like that. But you know, the, the protest on Saturday night only had maybe 300, 350 people or something like that. So not anywhere close to the numbers of, of um, you know, the 2020 protests. So what could happen in this is, which would, I, you know, be a, be a good thing if these protests really do kind of combine and go mainstream, is you could see some kind of blow up like there was in 2020 with some a very visceral, documented police killing that is so clearly an example of injustice that it gets, you know, every single person with half a shred of political consciousness mad and fired up about this. Adding that to the fact that this specific sort of forest movement is already supercharged with the death of an activist and, and sort of putting those things together, you, you could see an enormous outbreak of protest nationwide, but particularly in Atlanta. 
and why that matters in Atlanta, I think, is, is because of what we were just talking about, is because in different parts of the country, we've seen the police take the gloves off um, and really be brutal toward protesters in the 2020 protests. But even then, the people who were arrested in New York City, who were arrested in Minneapolis and things like that, oftentimes were charged with very severe felonies and things like that. Georgia is setting precedent with this that that protest for a cause that the state deems undesirable is terrorism. And that's that's currently a Georgia-specific thing. The domestic terrorism law is a Georgia law. It's not a federal law. But if other states see a reinvigoration of protest to, to even a shred of the scale of 2020, and they start adapting the things that Georgia has, has put out into the world and the playbook here, then that could drastically change, you know, the face of like what the First Amendment and the face of what rights protesters have in the United States. And like, it's been a really, like, I've been really interested um, over the last couple of years since those George Floyd protests of like, you know, when is that next flashpoint going to be that's going to lead to uh, another wave of, of anti-police protests? There's been no shortage of violent police incidents uh, in that time. Uh, so you're kind of wondering when that next stage is going to be. And uh, this is an interesting moment to see whether that's going to escalate in the way that we know, you know, we know is a possibility. At the same time, though, I do understand why like activists, especially like racial justice and anti-police activists are demoralized because you look at the George Floyd protests and how, you know, those are the, that was the largest kind of sustained protest movement in modern American history. And what was the actual result to that? More money going to police. Um, police killing more people now than they were previously. There's a few like individual cases like George Floyd's specific killer ended up getting consequences for the murder or, you know, the state, the justice department opened up an investigation into Breonna Taylor's killing. So these specific high profile cases got investigated, but meanwhile, systemically nothing has changed, whatever. And in fact, everything has gotten worse. Meanwhile, um, like you're pointing out, Jack, all the, the consequences for protesting are making, are becoming more and more, um, severe as police departments around the country are kind of prepping for that next wave. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the most militant organizers in those protests wound up uh, dying in mysterious circumstances and were found in burned out cars later. Um, so you know what I mean? It's like, I, I'm, I've, at the one hand, I've been wondering when that next flashpoint is going to be. On the other hand, though, it's like, I, it's, I completely get why people that are activists and are uh, militant about this particular issue would be kind of demoralized about investing their time and their livelihoods and putting their lives on the line to engage in this kind of protest movement when they know not only can they be killed, can their lives be ruined with charges, but that even if you put together the most high-profile, sustained, militant protest movement in American history, no one will listen. No one will do anything and nothing of the things that they're complaining about uh, or advocating for are going to be followed uh, anyways. It, you know, It's not surprising that, that yeah. such a flashpoint hasn't really materialized yet. Yeah, I mean, I think at least from what I saw over the past few days and from this movement entirely and from some of those, you know, very dedicated activists that you're speaking about is this stuff could be demoralizing, but I think it's it's not to a certain extent. People are still very committed to these struggles and to the sort of general struggle as it as it brings together all of these elements of society, obviously, um, the struggle against uh, over policing and, and for racial justice is the one that comes to the forefront most often and is possibly most like endemic across our society. But I, I think that people are still very not demoralized against that. I think maybe 
you know, I am kind of speculating here, but I think maybe some of that is because it's gotten to a point where it's already so bad that the only the only choice you have is to take to the streets, right? So even if it gets worse, that's still the only option available to people. And I think there are enough people who, if they still want to fight, that's that's what they're going to be doing because there isn't there isn't really anything anything left for them to do other than continue this fight and hope that the tide turns eventually. Hope that whatever they're able to do on the streets inspires, you know, this probably isn't how they would put it, but I'm just thinking in someone that still puts some shred of a, of a like value in electoral politics, but hope that what they're doing in the streets is enough to inspire, you know, even a few more state houses to flip or congressional seats to change or something like that. And that we, slowly inch toward progress. But doing that takes an enormous amount of direct action, an enormous amount of risk and an enormous amount of sacrifice from the people who are like, who are actually doing the work and not just showing up to vote. I think that's a good place to, to leave it. Uh, Jack, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your reporting. Uh, like I mentioned, your, your first story contextualizing and illustrating uh, the, 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 community of activists in the in the forest was so well written i felt like i was there reading it so we'll put that link in the show notes i would encourage everyone to read both of his pieces in rolling stone on this and stay tuned for more developments jack where can people follow you and your reporting um i'm on twitter that's usually where all my stories kind of go out at js cross j-s-c-r-o-s uh that's my handle on pretty much anything you can follow me on instagram but you're uh probably going to see a lot more of uh me at the gym and then random snaps of uh airports and things like that uh other than actual you know journalism um yeah i'm around uh i've got a, a proton mail in my in my twitter bio and um Otherwise, yeah, most of my most of my work is at Rolling Stone. Uh, you can find that story pretty easily by just searching Rolling Stone, the battle for Cop City, um, if you don't get it from the show notes. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, again. Jack. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening.